Welcome to the Top Nonprofits Podcast. We know that you're working hard to stay on top of the latest best practices to help your organization deliver on its mission. And this podcast is here to make that a little easier. Twice a month, your host, Amy DeVita, interviews a nonprofit expert on topics ranging from fundraising to volunteer recruitment and a little of everything in between to give all our friends an opportunity to learn from the best nonprofit leaders and organizations out there. Hi, everybody. This is Amy DeVita, and thanks for joining us today. Really excited to introduce you all to our friend Martin Leifeld. Um, Martin, hello. Hello, Amy. So good to be here with you today. Thank you, Martin. I'm glad you could be here too. Today, we're really going to be focusing on fundraising. Um, Martin has a great book called Five Minutes for Fundraising, a collection of expert advice from gifted fundraisers, one of whom um, he happens to be, and he's going to share some of his um, best advice for all of us, realizing these are very difficult and challenging times right now. Um, I think his advice will be something we can all kind of look to and strengthen our relationships with our donors. So before we get started, Martin, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure, Amy. Well, um, I grew up in Minnesota, a small town on the Mississippi River, not far from St. Paul, Minneapolis area. And um, uh, was privileged, you know, fortunate enough to get a college education and so on and got working. And looking back now, uh, I'm now 65. So looking back now, I've had 40 plus years in leadership roles. Um, 25 of those years were actually working at universities, several universities. And uh, also 25 years of those were uh, devoted to fundraising as my primary responsibility in addition to administrative duties. And uh, they didn't exactly overlap with my university experience. But uh, I retired uh, from the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where I was vice chancellor uh, for 10 years, about a year and a half ago. And since then, uh, I kind of say I'm an author, coach, consultant, and speaker. And uh, you mentioned the book. I appreciate that. It's a great book, not just because I, I contributed, but 26 other experts did. And uh, but I'm also doing some other work. Uh, I've got uh, if people go to martinleifel.com. There's 100 about 125 videos actually there, mostly brief videos from one minute, you know, to you know full length uh, presentations on fundraising and on on leadership. And uh, that's a part of what I do. I have a big, fairly big following on LinkedIn, and I, I post there regularly. And it's all really about trying to give back now based on uh, the fact that you know, the fundraising profession and nonprofit sector has been um, such a blessing in my life. And speaking of your life, um, you know, as I was reading the book, I was definitely struck by the early childhood, you know, um, influences around you through your family and your community um, that I think may have helped lead you toward a life of helping others and fundraising? Well, I grew up, as I mentioned, uh, in a small town, Hastings, Minnesota. It was, I think it was less than 10,000, maybe 5,000 back when I was a child, but uh, grew up in a humble family. that was a very value-based. There's uh, spirituality was in the middle of it all. And I have four older sisters and a younger brother, all of whom are living right now. 
And we grew up together in a modest home. My mother was a homemaker and my father was a janitor and um, uh, working in uh, elementary schools. And we grew up, I have to say, with with very little, though, I never felt like I didn't have what I wanted <clears throat> back in those days. It, those were simpler times. And we had each other, of course, and we had the community that surrounded us and relatives and all. And what was really, you know, when I think about a formative uh, experience for me when I was growing up was, of course, the example of my parents. And my parents uh, tithed uh, their their income, you know, 10%. They tithed their income to charities and on a janitor's salary. And um, I've got, we all, all my siblings now have books of my, the, the registers my, my dad kept with, you know, it'd be on a page and it'd be, you know, so many cents for bread, so many cents for milk, and then so many cents going to the local church or what have you. And we, we have examples of, you know, how my parents did that over the decades. And, uh, but the thing is, Amy, um, my brother and I went through private, uh, private uh, high school. All six of us went through private college. Uh, and our parents helped, of course, uh, shouldered much of that to make it happen on a janitor's salary, less 10%. And, you know, it, isn't that pretty uh, hard to imagine these days? It, yeah, it's a it, right. well, well, I think it was hard to imagine actually in those days. In those days, too. yeah. But, but anyway, you know, what that served to do, I think, for, for the, not just me, but all my siblings, actually, all my siblings, their careers were in, uh, broadly speaking, helping professionals, helping mm-hmm. professions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it highlighted for me that number one, uh, there's always enough resources somehow. Uh, resources in one sense are limitless uh, or sufficiently present. And maybe we'll talk about that more in terms of fundraising in Mm -hmm. a minute. And that uh, there's nothing more beautiful than giving, giving away what you have in order to help others. That that's something really uh, a privileged thing to do. And uh, I think that kind of, those kind of values really serve to move me eventually you know, uh, well, most all of my career actually has been in the nonprofit sector. And uh, I think I got there, you know, without thinking it through, of course, as a young person. But I got I got I landed there mm-hmm. because of that kind of formative experience with my family and my parents. Yeah. And and according to research, a lot of people who give um, have learned it early on in childhood. So um, that's, I guess, not a terribly unusual um, path. And we're really happy that you took that. Um, The time you spent specifically at um, the University of Missouri, St. Louis, you headed up some really amazingly um, audacious um, campaigns. (laughs) So... um, Tell us a little bit about what your approach was and um, things that people can, you know, like I said, lean into these times because this, when you started this, if I'm not mistaken, you started this at the, basically around the same time as the Great Recession. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, little did I know uh, <laughs> in August of 08, I, I started as the, the vice chancellor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and uh, they were in the quiet phase of a campaign and I was to take it public in the next 12 months. And uh, little did I know that a month later, kind of the economic sky would fall and we would enter into this incredible, dark, confusing period uh, economically. Uh, so much uncertainty with people losing, you know, sub- significant pieces of, uh, you know, their the value of their estates and so on. And, uh, you know, in that sense, there's some similarities to where we find ourselves today. <clears throat> And uh, I noticed, observed, in talking with people that, you know, any number of organizations were suspending campaigns and others were stopping campaigns. And I didn't want to do that because I just arrived and they hired me, you know, to to make something happen with this campaign. The first one ever at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, comprehensive campaign. And um, I remember as I was kind of working through this, uh, reading an article, and in that article, Robert Sharp, who's a great uh, consultant uh, in the uh, southeastern United States, was quoted as saying that some organizations raised more money during the Great Depression than they did beforehand in the Roaring Twenties. Well, that really struck me. Mm-hmm. And that it was like the last piece of permission I needed. And I went to the chancellor, Tom George, and said, we are moving full steam ahead. <laughs> and uh, of course, you know, that was kind of jumping headlong into darkness. But uh, we got very busy, very focused, and began engaging <clears throat> with past supporters and so many new supporters because the university was so young. Um, the alumni really hadn't been engaged, and certainly in uh, those alumni with um, you know greater resources at their disposal, uh, really had not been engaged. So we got busy, and what's remarkable as I look back on it, Amy, is uh, the fiscal year there was July one to June thirty. And at the end of that year, that two thousand eight two thousand nine year, we had raised 54% more than the prior year, which had been the best year at that institution. Well, you know, I was getting calls and uh, requests for interviews, as was our chancellor, and it just kind of shocked the St. Louis community because, uh, you know, it it shocked everybody, frankly. And, of course, we were kind of puzzled. How did we get here? We had put our heads down and worked so hard. But what we found was this. Uh, going to donors and making the case, of course, respecting the fact that these were difficult times. We got, you know, fair hearings. And those who wanted to invest couldn't invest perhaps to the degree that they had wanted to uh, otherwise, or, you know, worked with us to shape, you know, gift commitments that would be longer than perhaps the university would have, you know, wanted to originally or would have had deferred giving, you know, estate components that they may not have considered doing otherwise. But uh, the donors wanted to work with us as we wanted to work with them. And uh, uh, long story short, in the first three years of that campaign before I arrived, there were three seven-figure donors to to that campaign. And uh, four years later, when we concluded that campaign, there were 31. 
So we added, you know, 28 seven figure donors plus lots and lots of donors at more modest levels and lots and lots of more donors than the university had ever had giving to the institution. So, you know, uh, not to, again, draw too close a parallel here, because these are, these are remarkably interesting and very challenging times for mm-hmm. us. But, but I think the illustration can be helpful in that, you know, my advice that I've been giving to those I'm working with and that other consultants are as I talk with other consultants is, number one, nonprofits should not stop what they're doing. And certainly in terms of how they engage with their, their donor community, they should not stop. They should be communicating. They should be at the, uh, using this time to talk with their donors, communicate with their donors, and as appropriate, you know, ask their donors, uh, sensitively, of course, for uh, support during this time. When and, you say, oh, sorry to interrupt, Mark. No, no. But when you're suggesting... Um, to reach out to the donors. Is there a particular channel, uh, a medium that you pr- you suggest is best or? Well, um, you know, there, there's many mediums. The one medium you don't use right now is face-to-face as in physically. So uh, a lot of the folks I'm working with, video calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're using resources like Zoom, what we're using today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, FaceTime and other resources to... Uh, have that you know visual exchange with their with their donors, and of course, phone work can work well, as as can written communications. But the the point is that we reach out. We don't reach out begging. We reach out saying, "How are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, how are your loved ones doing? Uh, how are you? How what are you thinking about all of this? How are you kind of adjusting your life accordingly?" And you start there. Mm-hmm. And we listen. I, I've always said, if you want to grow a relationship, listen 80% of the time. And uh, listen, invite them to talk. Because first of all, the, you know, we're, donors shouldn't be viewed as checkbooks. They should be viewed and respected as people, the people that they are. And if we, if we approach them that way, uh, they're going to they're gonna reciprocate and say, well, how are you doing? How's your organization doing? And that creates an opportunity, a moment in time to be able to say, well, this is how we're doing. And if you're challenged financially because of what's happened, if you have a particular part of your organization or maybe the entirety of your organization, uh, like an area food bank uh, is... Um, uh, under great pressure and demand to to uh, you know serve serve clients serve your mission, um, you can talk about that and and ask for their assistance. So yeah, we can't physically you know shake hands literally, but we can do that in these other means. The more personal, the better, of course, Amy. Absolutely, I I I love that. I think you're you know that's spot on and. The folks who, you know, we reach out to during these times with questions of how are you, sincere questions and listening to them. Those are the folks that are going to remember you were there for them. What I like too is the listening because oftentimes if you listen to them, they'll tell you how best to work with them. Listening, you know, perhaps is the most powerful tool we have as fundraisers. 
Before you were at the university, you had worked um, with a smaller, uh, um, an organization in a more rural location. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little um, insight into that and how the opportunities there differed and, you know, just any kind of general advice for fundraisers who are in a different situation than maybe a university setting? Right. Sure. Uh, well, this, when I arrived at this organization is in Southern Illinois, uh, it's a rural situation. And it was, I spent 10 years and kind of learned fundraising soup to nuts, but, uh, kind of had to start it from scratch or restart what they had in place. And, uh, one of the things I created in the first year on the job was um, a giving society which recognized you know uh, gifts at varying sizes uh, major gifts so to speak and in mo- you know most places as I looked around and did research pre- to prepare this um, you know a major gift started at a thousand dollars an annual major gift I should say and uh, as I assessed the giving history of uh, the group, you know, those that supported this organization, uh, I didn't see that happening. So what I did is I started um, this, the giving level of this society at $500. And it got a lot of people giving that would not have maybe gone up to $500 a year otherwise. And uh, every year we would ask them, uh, to please consider making that gift commitment again, and if possible, to raise it. And what we saw over the course of those 10 years is uh, giving many, many donors continuing to increase their their giving as they were able to from year to year. So, um, uh, and while we would have loved to have started that, that society at 1000 or heck, $2,500, uh, we had to work with who we had and where we were. I think if we would have come out at a thousand dollars, you know, we wouldn't have had the success ultimately over time that we had by inviting engagement and you know bringing benefits to people at a gift level that they would feel more comfortable at. And you know, we made that uh, giving available over over the course of a year. So you know, five hundred dollars uh, over 12, 12 months is you know what forty dollars or so. So it was more affordable for people uh, to think about reaching that level. Kind of once we got the uh, annual giving going, we began doing some spe- special gift work, major gift work. And, and this was my first time doing that. And I would crisscross Southern Illinois, listening to, to audio cassettes in those days. I don't know if you know what an audio cassette is, Amy, but audio cassettes in the car. Of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, I grew up yeah. with eight tracks, so okay. Okay. we're good. <laughs> uh, well, you, get, you get it. You know, listening to f- experienced fundraisers. And um, I found it, you know, I, 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 I'm an introvert, by the way. So, you know, I found it kind of intimidating, this idea of going and asking people face-to-face for money. And I used to crisscross Southern Illinois, and I would rehearse out loud in my car repeatedly. You know, kind of like, uh, John and Mary, would you give uh, $10,000? You can pay this over four years in order to support education for such and such. And uh, 
I would repeat it and repeat it and repeat it in the car because otherwise I would get in there in their home or an office and there'd be distractions or I would feel, I don't know, uh, timid and I wouldn't get the job done. And it's a long ride home across Southern Illinois <laughs> if you didn't do what you set out to do in the first place. And so what I learned through all that, and for those of, those of you who are listening and are just kind of getting into this work, is to be successful in major gift work is all about preparation. And I have to say rehearsals. You know, prepare yourself as thoroughly as you can, which helps in and of itself to relieve you of anxiety, worry, and fear. And then practice the actual, uh, you know, paragraph or sentences that you are going to use when you, certainly when you get to the point of asking someone for money. Um, It helps you to get it out. It's as simple as that. And, you know, over time, and by the way, you know, I think I've had hundreds of donor engagements in the course of my career. And uh, for each one, I would do that kind of preparation and and not necessarily rehearse to the degree I did, but I would rehearse and I would uh, call in other fundraisers and other people to talk through what I would do in advance so that uh, I could be as clear and as confident as possible before I went to engage with uh, the prospective donors. I think that's some great advice. Um, As we were talking earlier, I told you that my background is in publishing and that primarily is sales. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. there is definitely something to be said for preparing for your meeting to your client or in this case, your donor, um, rehearsing what you're saying enough that you feel comfortable saying it. And it's not like really hard to spit out those words, you know, Martin, can you support us with this gift? And, you know, the more you say it out loud, the more comfortable you are and confident. Martin, these are difficult times. I mean, there's just, this is, we don't really have anything to really compare what we're going through right now to. Um, What advice do you have for those, you know, brothers and sisters out there who are fundraising and facing these, you know, these challenging times? To to my brothers and sisters, uh, fundraising professionals and volunteers, be talking to one another. Reach out to your peers because we're all in this together. You know, ask one another, what are you doing? How are you facing this, facing that? Get advice and counsel and examples and perspectives that give you a sense of, oh, well, how might one thing or another apply to my situation? Um, go to the professional organizations like the Association for Fundraising Professionals or CASE and you know, I, I don't know if you're like me, Amy, but I, I get downloads of good advice from our uh, postings, I should say, and emails from all kinds of consultancies and and leaders that are filled with uh, insight and wisdom nuggets that can be put mm-hmm. to use. Yep. I'd, I'd also say certainly use this as a time to further educate yourself. You know, get five minutes for fundraising as a book and read it. I, that's uh, a perfect time. <laughs> exactly. Perfect segue. We've got, we've, we all have five minutes. Um, and, but the, the book is really phenomenal. So definitely yeah. recommend it. Go to websites like martinleifel.com. In fact, I should say back on the call, the preparation point, uh, if you go to martinleifel.com and click on the free downloads, there's a call preparation worksheet which is a template 
Oh, great. That, uh, is, they're available for folks to use. I've used it. My people have used it or a form of it for years. Um, but I, I, I would also say this on a personal level. You know, of course, this doesn't just affect us as professionals. It, it, this is just unbelievably challenge for, challenging for us as human beings. Yeah. And, and for many of us, as we were sharing before, we, we, you know, I have somebody very near to me as a colleague that's going through COVID-19 and pneumonia, terrible challenge for her. Uh, we may have somebody in our family, we're probably a degree or two away from people we know who are um, who have passed away because of it or who may pass away because of it. It's just an incredible moment. But even in spite of all of this, what moments like this give us is uh, an opportunity to reassess. And the question mm-hmm. I, I pose to myself and I would suggest others consider is what matters most? Mm-hmm. Given this moment in time, Martin, what matters most? Amy, what matters most to us? Let's think about that. Let's, let's yeah. answer that question. Let's, let's write it down. Let's, it's a moment to really reassess. Let's reach out. And though, you know, depending on our, our families and how we engage uh, in, uh, culturally and so on, we may or may not be more verbal in how we express our affection and our appreciation and our love for others, but now's the time to do so. Now's the time to say, hey, I'm just calling to say I'm worried about you. I'm concerned. Thanks for what you've meant to me. Mm-hmm. I-, I love you. And, uh, and hopefully you'll receive those kinds of uh, 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 experiences yourself to because yeah. you strip it away. You know, when you strip it away, you know, family, friends, community, our engagement with other people is, I think, one of the things that, of course, matters most certainly to me and I think to many people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I certainly hope that everyone out there listening is um, is staying healthy and following guidelines and. Mm. Um, and I encourage you to reach out to us. You know, certainly you can reach out anytime if there's just want someone to vent to who's not one of your colleagues or family members that you might be currently um, isolated with, which is our situation in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, also to, you know, we all have our coping mechanisms. So I might have nervous laughter that seems, you know, certainly it's more of just this uncertainty um, and providing information like this. It's a way to keep busy and kind of try to maintain some level of normalcy in an otherwise, you know, haywire situation. Mm -hmm. So um, I just like to let folks know that that's the intent here is to be as helpful as we can be um, and certainly not um, ignoring the humanitarian side of all of what's going on right now. So um, that being said, um, I thank you so much, Martin. I will include um, that link that to your site so that people oh. can download that template um, for the people who do want to kind of go head down and get some work um, to stay busy. But, you know, really those, that engagement and reaching out to people is such a powerful thing, especially in a time where we're all so isolated particular thought you'd like to leave us with? 
whether we're thinking about fundraising or, uh, uh, you know, professional dimension or personal dimension of our lives, here's, here's what I think about in the entirety of my life. And I hope it's true for everyone. And that is I've been surrounded by goodness. I've lived a privileged life. I've been surrounded by loving people. I have a wife that loves me unconditionally. I have children that love me unconditionally, siblings and so on. There's a lot more love around us than sometimes we take the time to appreciate. And we're also in a position to, to reach out and to love others, however we express that. And I encourage people during this time to draw strength from one another and draw strength as you think back on your life and all the good, the good that, has, that you've been so fortunately, fortunate to experience and to uh, have. Thank you. That's perfect. All right. And thank you all for all the good that you're doing every day. And, um, and I hope you take some comfort too in all of the good that surrounds you, as Martin suggested. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. That's it for today, friends. See you soon. In the meantime, check out all the great resources we offer at topnonprofits.com. 